So now that we've survived Babylon and Daniel, we are going to be leaving Babylon in Ezra and Nehemiah. So we're going to leave Babylon for the next few weeks. So let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you help us to always seek your kingdom and your righteousness. Give to us all other things we need as well, that through our participation with you, your kingdom may be enlarged in your church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Whoever marries the spirit of this age will find himself a widower in the next. Whoever marries the spirit of this age will find himself a widower in the next. That was said by William Ralph Inge. And he's right. Because the spirit of this age is temporary. So, you Christian, if we're going to marry the spirit of this age, we're eventually going to become a widower. The spirit of this age is going to die. Everything the world produces is temporary. And one of the beautiful benefits of studying Daniel in this Babylonian period is that now we're entering into the post-Babylonian period. Babylon falls. Babylon is not the eternal empire, the eternal kingdom. Babylon has one serious flaw and weakness. You remember this from last week? The weakness of Babylon is time. Time will wear the spirit of this age down. And so Babylon crumbles. Persia is the new empire. Guess what's going to happen to Persia? Persia is going to crumble. Greece will become the next empire in between the Old and New Testament. And guess what's going to happen to Greece? It's going to crumble. Rome becomes the next empire. And guess what happens to Rome? You get, the, you get it, right? You get it. What's going to happen to America? It's, unfortunately, it's the same. Babylon has fallen, and we have survived Babylon. We will survive this world if we keep to the ways Daniel showed us to move forward. But what we also want to do is to leave the spirit of this age. We want to leave Babylon. We want to go to our home in Jerusalem. So how do we now intentionally move ourselves forward? Um, this concept of leaving Babylon is from the Bible, which is where I got the concept. Uh, Isaiah chapter 48, verse 20, Isaiah says this, Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, and declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, and say, The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. God has moved, he's act, he's saved, so therefore my people, leave Babylon. The prophets warned that there will be a time when Babylon will no longer hold you in captivity. And when that happens, get out of Dodge and go back to the temple to worship the true God. Revelation chapter 18 picks up on this very theme and says this. This is two verses from Revelation 18. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Come out of her, my people. Why? lest you partake in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. It seems that John in Revelation takes the empire Babylon as a symbol, as a type of the world which we always live in, which is why we're talking about leaving Babylon. Babylon as an empire is crumbled, but the spirit of Babylon continues, which is why Peter um, says um, at the end of one of his epistles, that he's writing from Babylon. Peter wasn't in Babylon. Peter was in the heart of the world empire, which at that time was Rome. Um, So we are called out. So here's what Ezra and Nehemiah are about for us. It's about rebuilding God's church amidst the rubble and the ruins of Babylon. So knowing that the world is crumbling and decaying, how how does the church come out of being hijacked by the spirit of this age? And how do we build the true church of God and dodge all these rocks and rubbles? Or worse yet, the Tower of Babel has been erected in all of our hearts through pride. And then it gets destroyed and the rubble, the shards of this destruction are in us. And so it's like on one hand, it's like, yeah, I'm free from the world. I'm free from sin. And we've been liberated. The tower's broken. Babylon's fallen. But... 
the shards and the rubble is still there, isn't it? And we trip on these in places through our lives. Well, building the church is about building a community of people and spreading an influence in the world that says we are not of this world. We are of the kingdom of God and we're going to spread and enlarge his kingdom wherever we go. Okay? So, Gregory gave us a great launch last week with this idea that um, Israel was given freedom from Babylon to return to their land, given money to go build their temple, and shame on them for taking so long to do so. 538 B.C. 539, Babylon falls. 538, Zerubbabel brings people to Israel. 516, how many years is that? It's like 40 years or so. The temple's finally finished. It took them 40 years because they kept on holding back from what God is telling them to do. So, brothers and sisters, in leaving Babylon, this is the key concept we need. It is not enough that we reject Babylon in our minds. We must leave. We must eject Babylon in our hearts. We can't just reject it in our minds. We must eject it from our hearts. Think of Israel in the wilderness Uh, God took Israel out of Egypt, but it took a long time for God to get Egypt out of Israel, right? We might be released from Babylon, but it's going to take time and work most of our lives to get Babylon out of us. That's what we're going for. So how do we do this? How do we get Babylon removed from the people of God? God leads us through three phases. This is in Ezra and Nehemiah. He leads us in three phases. So the first phase we saw last week. That was the first return of the exiles to Jerusalem. It was under a man named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel brings almost 50,000 people to Israel. And he's given money by the Persian king to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. And he's given the vessels that the, the evil king Belshazzar was drinking from on the night that Babylon fell. All the treasures are given back. He goes to build the temple. Phase one for the church is that we build a foundation of worship. And we heard last week, we were admonished to not to slacken on that mission. So now I'm just adding to Gregory's message. We must be robust and intentional in our worship because worship is the foundational piece of how we rid Babylon from our hearts. We don't just worship. Now, notice the word just. We don't just worship with our own expression. And we do that as well. But we also worship in the way that God leads us. Because if it's just my expression, I have no foundation except for how I feel. But if I'm led by God then I am being led out of Babylon and into his kingdom. Worship is one of those things that gives us a foundation for his kingdom. The second phase begins tonight in Ezra chapter 7. The second phase, Ezra is given liberty to go to Jerusalem. Ezra leads, remember Zerubbabel had almost 50,000 people. Ezra leads a little more than 1,700 people. From this to this. Because not every Christian is willing to continue to leave Babylon, right? We get great enthusiasm at the beginning, and then it tapers the further we go. Phase two, Ezra comes to Jerusalem to teach the word, to give the community their instruction. So after we have a foundation of worship, we need instruction from the word. Phase two, the word is one of those instruments that God speaks to us through to remove the rubble of Babylon from our hearts. And then third phase, that's going to be the book of Nehemiah. So that'll be uh, next week. We'll start Nehemiah. And Nehemiah comes to build the walls of Jerusalem, right? So you have a temple built, worship. You have the word there. The community is now being reoriented around God's way of doing life. But there are no walls There's no protection. There's no salvation. What Jerusalem needs is the salvation of walls to keep the unholy things out from coming in. And so Nehemiah's role is going to be to build those walls, not to keep people away from God, not at all. Quite the contrary, people in old times were drawn to cities with walls because cities with walls meant protection when there was danger. So the walls were meant to be this emblem, this bulwark calling out to the peoples, here is salvation, here is safety. And at the same time, walls keep out those who pose threats. The church needs 
the right walls built. The walls with open gates for those that want in, but the walls that keep the unholiness and the spirit of this age in Babylon out of the church. And this being phase three is the one, in my opinion, and maybe you would agree with me because I know a lot of you, that the church is weakest in having a strong wall. We have temples. A lot of us have word, but not a lot of us have walls. And this is the three-phase organization that God is giving us for building a church that is unmarried to the spirit of this age. We need all three. So tonight, the instruction of the word. Um, Okay, now uh, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 7. I'm sorry, Ezra. Ezra chapter 7. Verse 1. So Ezra comes with the word. This is phase two. The word is going to unroot Babylon from our hearts. And you'll see how this works. Chapter 7, verse 1. This is the year 4. There's a 50-year gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7. So the temple's been up for 50 years. Now Nehemiah... uh, This is going to be rough, isn't it? Now Ezra comes. Um, Do you know, and Ezra and Nehemiah, they're the same. They're one book in the Hebrew Bible. So sometimes it's, my mind just goes to, they're one. And yeah. Um, Okay, so Ezra comes. Now, verse one. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, bear with this, okay? You go somewhere. Son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah. There's some name suggestions, by the way, if you don't know how to name your children. Son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of... <laughs> yeah, that's something Atticus would come up with. Son of Abishua, son of Phineas. You might remember him in the Pentateuch. Son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the chief priest. Who's Ezra? A <laughs> big deal. He's part of the Aaronic lineage. So here's a guy who comes with this um, ordained authority. And more than that, verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylon. Now, up always means Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was elevated. In the Bible, you don't go down to Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem. Even if you're coming up from uh, the north, we would say, I'm coming down the 405 freeway, right? If we're going south, that's what we say. Because we have maps. There, they thought of elevation. So you go up to Jerusalem, no matter what direction you're coming from. So Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, which means he copied the scriptures in a world where you don't have printing presses. Scribes are how you got Bibles. He's a scribe. Skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. The good hand of God is on Ezra, and he gets to do some astonishing things. Now, Ezra is close to the king. Um, This is alluded to throughout chapter 7 as we go on. He's close to the king, so the king trusts him, which is why he's sending Ezra. Nehemiah also is going to be close to the king. He's the cupbearer. Ezra is probably a court scribe since he can write, which is not always common in those days. Um, the king lets his close members go to Jerusalem because this was a key position because the Greeks had already been citing. They're trying to stir up turmoil because, you know, the Greeks are going to take down the Persians eventually um, when Alexander the Great's born. But the Greeks are, are working with Egypt right now to cause um, division in the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire wants Jerusalem to be secure so that they can't continue to move up the map, if you will. So Ezra, a trusted advisor, is sent to Jerusalem. And what Ezra gets, he gets everything that he asked, it said in verse 6, because the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now, when the hand of God is on us, we can see things that we wouldn't normally expect or even think of asking for. We get blown away. And it's astonishing what the king gives to Ezra. For example, he gives him permission to leave. He's a really important dude, and Ezra's allowed to take people out of his kingdom, Jews, to go back to Jerusalem. This could potentially incite a revolution, couldn't it? But Ezra gets this. So, in verse um, 11, we see this. 
This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and the statutes for Israel. The letter says, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, until Jesus comes, uh, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Peace. And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or the priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. <laughs> so, Nehemiah, you want, ask for what you want. You get it. They can go with you. So Nehemiah gets the pick of the lot. If they're willing to go, he can choose the best people to go with him. Uh, sorry, Ezra. Just assume from now on Nehemiah and Ezra are one person. <laughs> uh, verse 14. Uh, for you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Not only is he sent with whoever he wants, but now he gets to go and seek out if Jerusalem is following the laws of God. The king isn't saying, make sure that they do things Persia's way. He's saying, well, yeah, go ahead and make sure these people do what your God has put in your heart for them to do. So first, the Persian Empire gives them the treasures of the temple to go build it again, which Babylon tore down. Now, Ezra has given all this freedom to go and teach people the law of God. And on top of this, the king says, oh yeah, the journey is going to cost money. The temple probably needs some repairs or probably needs some more work done. Uh, oh, we found some more vessels from your temple. You can take these too. And oh, by the way, I'm not going to tax your people. Uh, the priests, at least. Oh, and if you need any extra money, go ahead and ask for it. But, okay, so I just summarized. This is how he says it in verse 15. And also, carry the silver and the gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia. So if you can find someone willing to give it to you, it's yours. And with the free will offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall, with all diligence, buy bulls, rams, lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. And whose tab is this on? The king's. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, you may do according to the will of your God. So whatever you have left over, do as God leads. You don't need to give it back. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, may you provide it out of your pocket, out of the king's treasury. Oh yeah, we discovered there's a leak in the roof. The king says, yeah, yeah, call the, call the roof, man. It's on me. Like, just whatever you need, it's on me. It's incredible what Nehemiah gets. Now, the rest of the verses talk about, it, it details some of the money that they bring, and then that's where it says that um, those that work in the temple will be tax-exempt. That's cool. So he's given permission to go. He's given financial aid for rebuilding the temple and for the journey. And finally, he's given authority. He's given absolute authority. Um, this is crazy. In verse 25, And you, Ezra... According to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province of Babylon, or province beyond the river, excuse me, all such as know the laws of your God. Ezra is sent to go set up a government of godly people. You have authority to go and change all that. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. In other words, Nehemiah, you have the authority of the law. You can enforce the law of your God in any way you see fit. Go and do this. Okay, this is incredible what the king gives Ezra. It's not just like, oh, sure, you can go and figure it out. Yeah, I'll give you permission. It's as if you went to your boss and said, I need a vacation. And he said, sure. Oh, 
And you're like, but I, I only have one vacation day left, so I'm only going to be gone one day. And he's like, oh, don't worry about that. I'll give you a whole two weeks of vacation, even though you've already used up your hours. I'll give you two weeks. I'm like, oh, wow. Uh, okay, thank you. And then the boss says, oh, and by the way, I'll buy your plane tickets. And I'll provide all the food. Uh, so make sure you go to really nice restaurants. And I will provide, right? You get the point. Like, I just asked for time off. And now all of this is being provided. Um, this is what happens when the hand of God is upon us. But we cannot have the hand of God upon us if we have instead grabbed for the hand of Babylon or the spirit of this age. We must keep our hands open so that the hand of our God can hold us and help us as we leave Babylon. Now, this all happened because of God's helping hand. Uh, You've seen that already, but I want to emphasize it more because this is a big theme in our text. Look at chapter 7, verse 28. It's actually like in the middle of 28. It says, I took courage for the hand of of the Lord my God was on me. Second time we see that. Now chapter 8, verse 22. I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. Ezra has this belief in the hand of God protecting them. And then 8, verse 31. In the middle of the verse, we see again, the hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy. So four times we read that the hand of God is on him. This is why there's success in Ezra's mission. And in whatever we do, brothers and sisters, as a church and in our lives, we must ensure the hand of God is upholding us in our endeavors, or it's not going to last. It's going to be like the Tower of Babel. The hand of our God will give us success. It will give us incredible blessing beyond what we expect. So we cannot just say, well, this is what we think will just blow the mountain about. I can't talk. Uh, Blow people out of the water about who God is. And then we just go and do it with our hands. And we build it and we say, we're grasping and we're reaching, we're pushing, we're shoving, we're pointing with our ideas. These are not the ways that we build lasting work. It's when the hand of God comes upon us and we allow that hand to move us. That is where success comes. And this takes patience. This takes a lot of waiting and praying and seeking God. But this is the only way that the kingdom of God is built. This is the only way that we make lasting work. We wait for his hand. How do we wait for his hand? How do we let the hand of God be upon us? What did Ezra, what was it about Ezra that God put his hand upon him? Well, the passage is actually very clear about this. You saw in 7 verse 6 that the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. And then in verse 7, it talks about uh, there he went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year. There's some details about time. But then in verse, um, at the end of verse 9, I actually missed one of these already. Um, at the end of verse 9, it says, For the hand, the good hand of his God was on him. Why? Because of verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Why is the good hand of his God on him? Because Ezra set his heart to study, to do, and to teach the law of God. This is a man who's waiting on God's instruction. This is a man who, even if it doesn't make sense, or even if it takes longer than all the worldly competition around me, is patient about God's processes. He understands that the Spirit of God works inside of us before he works outside of us. Because Ezra is a man who is devoted to the study, the doing, and the teaching of the word of God. Phase two for leaving Babylon is that we are instructed by the word of God. What do you think would happen if we set our hearts to study, do, and teach the word of God? Ezra was just given permission to change a city. What would happen if this church set their hearts to study, do, 
and teach the word of God? What would happen just in your life if you devoted yourself to such a discipline? The possibilities are beyond what we can imagine because it's the hand of God, not our hand that's upon us. So here's um, what we see next. We see that Ezra is a man of the word and the word pairs Ezra with God's hand, his powerful hand. And so Ezra is sent with unimaginable resources and power to go accomplish this mission of, of, of bringing Jerusalem back to the scriptures. Um, and so what happens then when Nehemiah, when Ezra gets there and begins to bring the word to people, what happens? Well, what happens is chapters 9 and 10. And chapters 9 and 10 show us this. That when the word is worked with, and not our own ideas, not the spirit of this age or whatever pop theories are saying, but that when we work with the word of God, the word of God works in us. The word of God works. It is living and active, as Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting to the division of soul and spirit, uh, bone and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is what bringing the word to a community does. And now we're going to see specifically what happens. So in chapter 9, by the way, the rest of chapter 8 is about his traveling to Jerusalem. And uh, he basically gives the treasures to 12 priests to be the ones that hoard it, or not hoard it, hold it is what I meant. <laughs> hold it uh, to protect it, you know, distributing your wealth. And then um, they're going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to be administering 12 divisions of the funds. That's basically what chapter 8 says. Um, they get there and they offer the animals that they bring with them. There's a worship service. And now in chapter 9, presumably they're there. Ezra's been teaching the people the law of God. And this is what we see in chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me. So this is now Ezra in the first person. Approached me and said, The law of Israel and the priests... I'm sorry, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Eight of the despicable nations that God calls abominations as Israel enters the promised land, he says very specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 7, these nations, named again, are the ones that you shall have no association with, for they are so corrupt, they're dead to me. Now, there are really good reasons God had this attitude toward them, which tonight cannot do justice for, so I will not even go there. But God does not hate these people for no reason. Um, there's good reasons why he says Israel shall have no dealings with them. Now, you learn why in Israel's history, you learn eventually why because they do mingle with these people and what happens they begin to offer their children to Moloch on his burning hot arms and they have all kinds of debauchery happening in the land and that's why Israel falls in exile and goes into Babylon in the first place so now they're coming back and now that they're back oh the story's repeating itself the people are mingling with the people we're not supposed to mingle with again and now they're pulling out their beards and hair quite literally in a moment and they're saying no it's happening again Ezra it's happening. Um, in verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy, terrible translation, race, has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. Most of the newer translations are putting holy race, but you'll notice the footnote, at least in the English Standard, it has in the footnote, holy seed. The holy race is the holy seed. God is not looking at this as a race problem. God is looking at this as a religious problem. In other words, um, these, these pagan nations are going to be spoiling the holy seed, which God has passed down through Abraham, through his people, so that the seed would sprout into Christ and his church. This is what will be corrupted if Israel cannot have a foundation of worship, instruction from the word, and salvation through the walls. But instead, if they just forget all that and just, we'll do what the nations are doing, the Holy Seed is never going to see the light of day. 
that's the issue. This is a huge deal. So please do not read the word race there. That leads you in the wrong direction. The holy seed has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. The hand of God is on Ezra because he studies the scriptures. But the hand of the leaders is on the ladies of the land. That's, that's the play on words we're seeing there. They're foremost responsible for this. And so then Ezra says in verse 3, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. I cannot imagine the distress you feel to go through that kind of pain. I would not voluntarily pull that out, but that's another thing. What we see here in chapter 9 is right away. Ezra gets here, he gets to work, and what happens? The word works. The word works. So what happens is, when we study God's word, it's dangerous. I hope you know that. I mean, I know, Pastor Brandon talks way too long every week, so sometimes you get a little like, oh, this this is my nap time. Um, And oh, we're in Ezra, it's not a very important book, and whatever. Um, But brothers and sisters, when we open the scriptures and actually study them, and let the scriptures do the talking, right? This is a dangerous thing because we're now allowing the word to work. And what happens when the word works is that it brings conviction. And then it leads to confession. I want you to notice who approached Ezra. The people came to him and said, we have this problem. It was not the other way where Ezra came to the people and said, you have this problem. Ezra wasn't using his hand to point at the people and say, you need to break up with these people. He was simply letting them, he was teaching so they could study the word. And what worked was the word worked on them. The word convicted them. The word showed them, we need to confess. We have been doing what God told us not to do. And when the word convicts us, it is far more motivational than if it's like your parents scalding you. You know how it is, right? When your parents said, don't do this, you're like, well, okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> we don't respond well to each other's judgments and criticisms, but what we do respond well is when it's the word of God speaking into our hearts. Now, obviously, sometimes the word is spoken through human vessels and, oh, I... I remember hearing someone say, so-and-so doesn't come to our church anymore because um, they felt uncomfortable. The the messages were too convicting. I was like, okay, well, I mean, I promise I wasn't trying to make him feel that way. Every now and then, of course, yeah. Every now and then, of course, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> the word convicts the people of their own sin. And now what ends up happening is confession is the natural byproduct. And Ezra feels this so heavily, he begins to confess himself. And it's this really deep prayer where, in which it's very rare in which uh, this entire prayer is confession. And in this confession, there's not a single petition made to God. In fact, it gets down to the point in which true confession does is it not only names generally the sins of the nation, it names personal sins, and then it says, And we deserve worse. I think for the sake of time, because I really need to break this habit of 60-minute messages, um, I will let you guys read his prayer in your own time. But I would like to point your attention to... Maybe it's verse 50. Yeah, verse 15. This shows you where true confession leads you to this moment. This is chapter 9, verse 15. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is this day, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. And in verse 13, and after all that has come upon us, For our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. Then he says, shall we break your commandments by by coupling with the people you told us not to? This is true confession. It seems that Ezra is unconscious of people. 
This He is just broken before God. And this is the beautiful thing about what we pray in our confession every week is um, my transgressions uh, are always before me. Um, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Um, so um, you are just in your sentence and without reproach in your judgment. Do you ever feel that? Like, can you say that to God? Like, this is what I've done, and you are just... Whatever your sentence is, you are just, and I deserve it. Everything else is mercy and grace. And this is where Ezra is. And now this moves the people. And so we see that um, in chapter 10, verse 1, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God... A very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. The word of God. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. And then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites in all Israel take oath that they would do as has been said. So they took the oath. What is happening here? First, God's word works because studying God's word stirs conviction and confession. But second, God's word works because doing God's word leads you to repentance. If you're convicted and you confess your sin, that's nice and dandy. But if you never turn, if you never redirect yourself toward the kingdom of God, returning to Christ our Lord, if that's not the next step, your confession and conviction is just going to make you miserable. All you're going to see, and this is what the world sees, all you're going to see is, oh, they hate themselves. Look at them ripping their hair out. And Christians are so miserable. Yeah, they can be a miserable lot. Absolutely. But what confession is meant to do is to bring people on their faces at the temple of God in worship to God, saying, you are all we have left. And then the people gather around Ezra and they're saying, we need a change. Let's get up. Getting up, the change, the repentance, the action that follows, doing God's word is what raises us up from the ashes and the dust and from the ripping our hair out and says, we're not miserable, pitiful people. We are resurrected, redeemed people. And this is what resurrected, redeemed people do. This is what they look like. God's hand is upon us to lift us up and to set us forth in his ways. Where do we start? What does the Bible tell us to do? Start just with what does Jesus say? The Sermon on the Mount, any of his words, go and do likewise. So Shechaniah is urged to act in repentance to this revelation. And so then Ezra does the last part. Remember, the hand of God's on because he studied, did, and taught the law. They were studying, they're convicted. They do now, they're repenting, and now Ezra is going to teach the people. He's going to lead them. This is what you want. Praise God. (laughs) From whom all blessings flow. It's like every pastor's dream, right? Um, So now he says, okay, cool. I'm going to teach us in the way of transformation. So now we see Ezra. We already read verse 5. You see him takes a lead. He says, all right, come on. Make an oath. We got to make up. This has to be intentional. We don't repent accidentally. It is not the nature of our hearts to repent. It's the nature of our hearts to just say, "Eh, I'm not that bad. I mean, you see what Tyler does. I'm really not that bad. Um, No, we must be urged to repent. It is a choice. Get up, take up your bed and walk, is what Jesus says, right? Because it's not natural for us to get up even if we're healed. We think, oh, I'm so used to being dead. Get up, oh sinner, 
And so this is what Ezra does. And so in verse 6, Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan and the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. Fasting, brothers and sisters, is one of the things that helps us to repent. It reminds us that our our senses are not what run our lives. Uh, Verse 7 and a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem and to all the, the, the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his prophecy, pro- property shall be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. In other words, excommunicated. We can't do that. That's so unloving. Well, actually, in the Bible, if people know what sin and choose not to repent, the Bible urges us to cast such people out. Why? Because they've married the world, and that should not be in the walls of the church. That, that's a biblical vision. I know that sounds super un-American, and I'm going to get stoned here probably from somebody else about that. But um, Ezra says it, Paul says it in Corinthians, that there are times when the church acts decisively because something is so severe. And Ezra acts decisively. Remember, the king gave him all this authority. Who are you to say you're going to take our land? And, oh, actually, King Artaxerxes, you know, the emperor, he gave me this authority, so. (laughs) But see, Ezra's using it in line with the word of God, and this is a good thing. So he's, look, basically, he's not being a bully. He's just saying, if you are part of the people of God, then act like a people of God. If you don't want to act like one of the people of God, there are those eight nations. Go join them. He's giving them a free will choice. So in verse 9, all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. Okay, take it they do love Yahweh after all. They just need a little motivation. And it was the ninth month, and on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of the matter and because of the heavy rain. This is intense. It's like winter. It's pouring rain on them. They're just like, we're so sorry. (laughs) And... Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. That's called repentance. Do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. That's called holiness. Holiness means to be set apart. Separate yourselves from them. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and there is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Like, we're catching cold here, Ezra. Can we, like, work on this in a better context? Uh, Nor is this a task for one day or two. And we have greatly transgressed in this matter. So let our officials stand for the whole assembly and let in all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them the elders and judges of the city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. And then verse 15 tells us that two people oppose this. Um, but then in verse 16, then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. It happened. The word of God worked. And Ezra was able to lead a transformation. And he did so. Um, and the, with the people's help, they decided, look, okay, we hear what you're saying. Let's be realistic. Let's disperse the responsibility for this among different sections, different leaders of our nation. And we will purge the wives. And then we get the testimony. They were purged. They were cleansed. But here's the, here's what we need to see. God's word works because when we study it, it stirs conviction and confession. God's word works because when we do it, it leads us into repentance, into God's will. And then as we're seeing here, God's word works because teaching God's word guides the transformation. It's one thing to want something. It's another thing to have guidance in doing it. And that's what Ezra does is he teaches them and how to do this. Now, there is a really clear observation here is that the point of teaching God's word is transformation. The primary point of teaching God's word is to transform us. So 
Yes, information is wonderful. Knowing all your stuff and all your languages and all your theologies and all the exact ways you should be looking, that's all great and dandy. But the teaching of God's word is for the transformation of his people. And that's how Ezra has used it from beginning to end. This is what he's after. The people becoming holy. Why do we preach every Sunday? I mean, to be honest, if you want to know the Bible with all this detail, I, I hold back so much of the nitty gritty, like nuts and bolts from you guys, because to me, it's like, okay, there's a classroom for that. And we can do that. No one's ever asked me to teach them more, so I don't. But um, what Sundays are for is the transformation of the people of God. We come to the word and ask God, how is this working in us? So I say this because sometimes we, we can come to church and judge a church by how much information we get. Or we judge a church by how much comfort we get. Consolation. It's very popular right now. This is one of the ways. I have never been shy about saying this in the past. The, the church has married the spirit of this, of this age. One of the ways is in we have reduced sermons to make you feel better about where you are in life. Well, there's, there's enough encouragement and instruction in there to, to have it be worthwhile. But the aim is to get people to come back. If we feel good about ourselves, we'll come back. That's basically what capitalism is about and um, consumerism and all the other things of the spirit of this age. But that's another, that's another thing for another time. Well, actually, it's not for another time. The time's right now. So, um, But I, I, in just a moment. Um, uh, the last part of chapter 10, we also see his teaching is that um, it has listed <laughs> uh, the names of all those who are guilty in intermarriage. And it's a long list of names. And um, here we have the wall of shame forever and ever. At least they repented, right? But the point in seeing this is that for Ezra, teaching God's word is about passing down from one generation to another the truths of living God's word. So sometimes, yep, we need the names there to remember what this generation did. So we pass this down to the next generation. And then the next generation remembers what happened in the next generation. One of our problems is that our teachings are so generationally removed. If all we're citing are current authors, or all we're talking, or we're only, we're only aware of our current context and forget that we are not the first Pentecost, and this church is not two years into the year of our Lord. Like, we're not at all. We're 2,000 almost years into the year of our Lord, right? Like, we have generations to learn from. And this is one of the things that teachings God word does is we want to teach the word in a way that is faithful to the tradition of God's people. We don't just make things up and decide, oh, no, that's not what it's really saying anymore. So all this shows us that God gives his people helping hand when the word of God is handled properly. Um, but we have a problem with looking for another hand. We take the hand of another wife or husband, but in biblical imagery, it's the wife, right? We're the, um, in here, the, uh, the men are grabbing for another hand. And so they're being married. And we, brothers and sisters, cannot just move on tonight, read this, say, okay, cool, that's what happened then, good for them. Maybe it'll happen one day for us. No. We have to look at this and say, have we married the spirit of this age? And if so, we need to leave that marriage. Now, I went into this in depth the first message of 2021. So you can go on the podcast and find that one. I went into depth about the state of the church in our nation and what we are trying to do as a church instead. Um, so you can go there. But I want to recap just a little sliver of that message. It was like 60 minutes long. <laughs> it was a bear. Um, but um, we have mixed marriages 
We have Babylon present in Christianity, at least in America. That's the only context I know. Um, and we look at Ezra and think, he's so extreme. He's so radical. He's making people change. Because oh, yeah. that's actually what the gospel's about. But in America, we've gotten so comfortable with this concept of the gospel. is just agreement to a set of beliefs, and I'm good. Like, that's it. I'm good. And and the church is in trouble because we've stopped there. We agree with this creed. We're in. And Ezra understood that, look, that is not it. If we agree with this creed, if our minds reject Babylon, but our hearts don't eject Babylon, then the church is just going to become one with Babylon. That's a mixed marriage. And that's terrible, and the gospel will be reduced. Uh, our, our, our primary maid of honor in our culture is secularism. That's a big word. It's a word that people kind of gloss over everything. But what secularism pretty much is, is it's this belief that Christianity is holding humanity back from progress. So the more that we can remove religion from the public sphere, the more that the public sphere can progress. That's it at its core. Now, it does this in different ways. Um, for example, um, it seeks to demonize or minimize Christianity. So either showing how Christianity is like, it's messed up so many people with its, with its doctrines on sex and gender, or, or to minimize it saying, oh, it doesn't, it's not really that significant. I mean, what they're teaching is very similar to what Buddha is already teaching anyway. So like, there's really nothing unique about the Christians. That's what secularism is doing. And as a culture, we're eating that up like it's truth. Um, secularism also does not actually seek to eliminate us. It just wants to contaminate us. It understands that if you just weaken the gospel, huh, it doesn't matter. Just let the people think they're good and different and holy, and they're not. So it contaminates the gospel by mingling Christianity with one of its many offspring. So when we couple with secularism, we give birth to a litany of offspring. Do you want to hear some of them? <laughs> You probably don't. It's ugly. And here are things that we see where the church is not necessarily any different than the world. Offspring, number one, hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure as the highest good. Is that in the church? Yeah, we see people all the time who want to do what they want to do because it feels good. Materialism, matter is the only reality or it's also a neglect of the unseen spiritual realm. Consumerism, that somehow my consumption of products, experiences, and entertainment will make me feel happy. We treat church like a consumerist experience. Individualism. Self-reliance is a virtue. I don't need other people because it's actually virtuous to do it alone. Nihilism or nihilism. It's the rejection of all established authority and institution. I will not go into all this. Humanism. Faith in the human potential. Humans have got it. We got this. Let them do their thing. Relativism. That truth is subject to an individual situation. Narcissism. Fascination with oneself. Pragmatism. Meaning is found in the practical consequences of something. So if I have to steamroll several people to get a couple people saved, it's worth it. Never saw Jesus do it that way. Um, Nationalism. A feeling of superiority over other nations. Has the church entered a mixed marriage with secularism? I would say so. As Christ's bride, uh, the church has immense power. And I need you guys to hear this. Like like Zerubbabel in in Ezra 1 was sent with this great wealth from the king to go rebuild the temple. Like Ezra, who's sent from King Artaxerxes with his great authority and wealth to go do what he needs to do to rebuild the community, we, the church, as the bride of Christ, are endowed with great authority, great power, and great resources. But we don't live like it. Ephesians 1, verse 3. We, we begin our worship gathering with this line every week, or at least every week in this season of the year. Um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why do we need other things? That tells us that we can't be overpowered by the world, but our power can be eroded by the world. 
And that's what we need to be careful of. So secularism is not unbelief. It's not like, oh, no, the church is fine. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Father. Like, we believe these things. We're fine. We're not secularized. Hold on, brothers and sisters. Secularism is not unbelief. Secularism is bad belief. It's about twisting who we are so that we're ineffective. So, in other words, it looks like this. Christ, yeah, we can talk about him. He can be present, but he cannot be preeminent. You cannot make claims of his authority. The gospel, okay, yeah, yeah. The gospel can be presented as good advice, but it cannot be good news. So, yeah, these are ways, you know, ten ways to be your best self now. That's according to the gospel. No, the gospel is news which changes the world. Um, The church becomes another item for our consumption based upon I like this personality or I don't like this personality or I like their political involvement or I don't like their political involvement or I like their problem-solving programs or I don't like their lack of problem-solving programs. That's consumerism. When we go to churches and we're like, "Mm, what, what what, what checks off the boxes that are important to me? Now, there are good boxes to check, but some of these are really unfortunate. Like, I'm in a church where the pastor preaches shorter and easier sermons. <laughs> Disqualifying myself here. Um, secularism wants worship to be an individual experience, not a communal transcendence. So what we do on Sunday nights makes little sense if you come in thinking the most important thing is me and my individual experience with God. I'm sorry, I am deeply disappointing you. Because I believe that worship is something that's supposed to bring believers together in person, in an actual place, and that the worship is supposed to be done in a uniform manner because we are going somewhere beyond me. But that's not how secularism organizes worship. Worship's about how I feel. You leave church. Did you get anything out of that? Or how'd you feel about that? It's like, that is really not the Christian response to worship. Uh, the New Testament... So, okay, like we see all that, and we're like, okay, maybe the church has been a little bit holding hands with secularism. Like, yeah, we're just products of our environment. We don't think about how to be different. Um, what does the New, uh, the New Testament speaks very strongly against this. Um, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, people usually apply that to marriages. Uh-oh, boy and girl, one's, one's a Christian, one's not. Oh, no. And that's a great application. Um, but it's actually talking about how the church is mingling with the world. It goes on and describes why should we not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Uh, Paul then cites uh, passages from Isaiah and says, because we are the temple, God walks among us. We cannot have defilement in our midst. So we must create separation. Um, how do we then... Understanding that maybe we've been yoked unequally with the spirit of this age, how do we break free from that? The only thing that we can suggest safely in Ezra's context is he did this by studying, doing, and teaching the instruction of God to the people of God. And the mixed marriages were eventually dealt with. We must keep on going in a straight line. And ever since we, we brought this up at the beginning of 2021, so that's um, almost two years ago. Yeah, it's almost two years ago. I've seen dramatic transformation and growth in so many of us. And I'm not saying this to say, you guys need to change. Um, I'm seeing this as a revisitation for what God has called us to be. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a checkup. How are we doing? I think we're doing pretty good, but we can always do better. Because a fish doesn't understand what water is until it's out of water and goes back in. We sometimes live in secularism. We don't understand how many ways it has hijacked us until we step out of it into a radically different context and then go back and like, oh, that's not at all what the Bible teaches us. And what what we want to create in our church is a temple of worship is a declaration of the word of god is a building of walls not to keep people out but to keep the ways of the world out we want to see a place that is so different from the world 
that people realize the kingdom of God is not just saying, I'm a Christian and I'm going to live like everybody else. Or I'm a Christian, I'm going to value what the world values. That we're actually repenting of so many things and reorienting and changing what's valuable to us. So we need to, like Ezra, study, do, and teach the word of God. Study, do, and teach. In other words, that means learn the word of God, live the word of God, and lead with the word of God. If we do this, then Christ will become what's the focal point of worship and not us. If we do this, then community will be the focal of a church and not me. If we do this, then challenge will be what we feel here and not convenience. This was so important to the early church that the book of Acts tells us in chapter 6 that when so many different administrative needs arose in the church, the apostles said, we cannot do this. We need to appoint people to feed the people because we are being pulled away from the study of the word of God and preaching it. This is how seriously they saw Ezra's role and took this upon themselves. And I think you can tell, maybe, I hope, how seriously I take it. Um, is that in Acts 2, or 6 verse 2, we see that um, the 12, the apostles said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, but we devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Okay, so here is the test. Here's the test, and I hope you guys keep me to this, of what is a pastor's role? What is a pastor's role in the tradition of the apostles? It is prayer and preaching the word of God. That's what they just said there. My role to you, and I hope that Brittany can confirm this, is that my primary job title, it was fun when I had to write one for um, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. It was kind of awkward. It's like, job description? What is that like for a pastor? Um, but thank the Lord that Eugene Peterson lays this out pretty clear. He says the pastor is, he adds one more role. The pastor has three roles. To pray, to preach, and to listen to people. And we see this in the early church, and we see this in Ezra, preaching and praying. Ezra prays, he preaches. Uh, the apostles say, you serve tables that we can pray and preach. If we're not a people who are led by the word of God and by prayer, we are handling things our own way, rather than experiencing the good hand of our God being upon us. Forgive me, brothers and sisters, for um, being lengthy tonight. Um, but may the hand of our good God be upon you. May he be upon me. May we see things within our midst that we cannot explain because God is at work. Let us leave Babylon by heeding the instruction of the word of God.